Welcome. My name is Dr. Karen Eifler, and together with my colleague, Father Charlie Gordon, we are the co-directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, and we are delighted to see people not just from all over the university, which is terrific, but from all over uh, the Portland area and even from Washington and Idaho and California, I've heard. So welcome. I have a few housekeeping details to take care of before we launch into the official introductions. Um, this is a terrific lecture. Uh, the Garavena Center is brimming, teeming with amazing things for the rest of the year. And we want to uh, send a special shout out to any K-12 teachers who are in the audience. We are able to offer you free PDUs for your attendance at this and any Garavena Center event. And all you need to do is sign up on the list that's uh, at the table uh, out in the lobby next to some of those delicious treats. I need to um, make sure that I thank Jamie Powell, our wizard of all things logistical, to the events crew, to instructional technology, and to our network of friends and colleagues who has helped us um, get the word of the Zom lecture out to everybody. Uh, we are thrilled um, at your support and your trust and your confidence, so thank you for that. Um, tonight's lecture is going to be terrific, and we have, as I mentioned, uh, a a brimming calendar just full of things that will touch your heart and your mind and your soul scheduled throughout the year. We have calendars in the back and I hope that if you did not pick up a calendar you will do so and if you see something that strikes your fancy I would encourage you to put it right away into your electronic calendar or your day planner. It's just not going to get any, you'll never have a riper time than this and if you want, we are always adding things to our calendar. We also in the Garavena Center host three podcasts, internet-based um, uh, reflections and observations. Uh, we have three of those, and we are always in the market for more subscribers. It's totally free, and we have a subscription list, again, out in the lobby that we encourage you, if you're not already part of our mailing list, to go ahead and sign up. That'll automatically enroll you for our podcasts and for uh, reminders of events that are coming up because I don't think a week is going by between now and the end of June when we don't have something terrific. So welcome. The Garavena Center, your host for this evening, celebrates and deploys the fruits of faith, reason, and imagination that constitute the Catholic intellectual tradition. We are delighted to kick off a new academic year with this, the university's signature academic lecture. When this series namesake, Father John Zom of the Congregation of Holy Cross, wanted his scientific peers to read something that he had written and he didn't want them to know he was a priest, he published it under the pen name H.J. Mozans. Then, as now, 100 years ago, as now, faith and reason were often seen as competing rather than complementary paths to knowledge. Father Zom found that writing under another name afforded him an opportunity to circumvent prejudice, to convey truths that he wanted those of his era to read, to know, and to remember to remember the great women of history who had contributed to science, to remember that holy revelation adds to the robust fruits of reason in the ongoing work of thinking through the difficult problems of his day. We continue that worthy work here today at the University of Portland, and it is a heady time to be on the bluff. We have new buildings, creative and energetic students, talented, dedicated faculty and amazing staff. And just in a couple of weeks, we will be inaugurating a new president, Father Mark Porman. And it says in my notes here, allow Father Porman to stand and perhaps wave. <laughs> At Father Porman's right hand, overseeing the entire academic division of the university, is our provost, Dr. Tom Green. Dr. Green is the quintessential Renaissance man. 
interested in any number of topics and possessing a remarkable intellect that combines with a sparkling imagination and a huge heart to produce a beloved teacher, a creative scholar, and a leader who draws out the best in the people around him time and again. He will provide the introduction for tonight's lecturer, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Tom Green to the podium. Thank you, Dr. Eifer, and good evening to everyone. It's a challenging task, as you can well imagine, to sift through a highly accomplished and equally modest person's resume and decide what an audience should know about a speaker as they settle in for a lecture. You want everyone to know that they're in for a treat, but you don't want the speaker to blush, blush too much. Tonight, that's my task. And as I introduce Father Kevin Grove of the Congregation of Holy Cross, the 15th Zom lecturer, to be welcomed to the bluff. Father Grove comes to us this evening from the University of Cambridge, where as a recipient of a prestigious Gates Fellowship, he's spent the last several years studying um, the search that so many of us engage in throughout our lives to fill the God-shaped hole in our minds. His approach um, to this search is wide-ranging, and you'll have a chance to hear about this in his lecture this evening, drawing from scripture, St. Augustine, ethics, and literature. He's presented his works at places as diverse as Stockholm, Sweden, and Gdansk, Poland. In January, he will begin a postdoctoral fellowship at L'Institut Catholique in Paris. To the long and impressive list of places Father Grove has presented his award-winning scholarship, we are very pleased tonight to add the University of Portland. We hope he is equally as pleased. Please join me in welcoming our 2014 ZOM lecturer, Father Kevin Grove, who will engage us in reflecting on memory, desire, and searching for God. Thank you, Dr. Green. It's an honor for me to be here with you at the University of Portland to deliver this year's ZOM lecture. But I must begin this night acknowledging that any of us who do research, study, and indeed minister, of course, stand on the shoulders of giants, intellectual and spiritual ones like Father ZOM. And since the last ZOM lecture, the Congregation of Holy Cross sent home to God one of its great theologians. Father John S. Dunn, CSC, who had taught 50 years' worth of undergraduate students and published over a dozen books. And the title of my lecture tonight is in part a tribute to one of his greatest books called A Search for God in Time and Memory. Now, let me open with an anecdote. My first formal dinner in graduate school in England in the dining hall top left, was like living in an old movie. A centuries-old dining hall, students wearing academic robes, and candles on tables were but the setting for the welcome of the master and toasts for a new year. For the students here, think opening night at Hogwarts minus a sorting hat. <laughs> but, as is the custom, the dinner ended with most of the students, still dressed in their nicest, moving to a nearby pub, bottom right, called the Maypole, to carry on the conversations. And dressed in my blacks, as I am tonight, I approached the bar in that local pub in order to request my pint. And there, two Americans, approximately my age, a young man and a young woman, stopped me to ask me a question before I got to the bar. The young man looked up and inquired bluntly, Are you for real? <laughs> and I get a lot of odd questions dressed as I am, but that was a first. Excuse me, I replied. And he repeated for clarity, are you for real? 
are you really a priest? And by God's grace, I somehow summoned the right question in response, because I blurted out, of course I'm for real and I'm really a priest. What do you do, and are you for real? (laughs) And I could now admit that I was really delighted that he was taken a bit by surprise. But as it turned out, his job was as unreal as my own, because he was an FBI agent. (laughs) And the young woman standing next to him was CIA (laughs) counterterrorism. They had just finished a job in London and had an afternoon off in Cambridge. And at this point, I realized that this really does start to sound like a bad joke. A priest an FBI agent, and a CIA agent stand at a bar talking about reality. (laughs) But it was for real. Ended up being a remarkable conversation, and the FBI agent bought my pint. (laughs) But I begin with that story because when someone like me begins a lecture about desire and memory and searching for God, It can often enough be the case that one assumes that an entire lecture hall is going to forget about reality for 40 whole minutes, leaving behind the strictures of reason. But that, of course, is the opposite of what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go after God as the one who is the most real, and we will take up that adventure by means of two things, desire and memory, in that order. Now, if we're going to go searching for God, we need to know how it is that, well, we go searching in general. And for each of us, that means identifying how we desire and what things we desire. And if I were just to cast the question out there, like a poll for the auditorium tonight, I would certainly get amazing answers. Perhaps we desire happiness or love or community or success, affirmation, etc. But I want to suggest a different way of labeling those things this evening. A very old way, but in some ways very new. It begins with a snapshot. And the first building block we need to put in place is going to be one that relies on scripture, though a bit of a whirlwind tour of it. I need you to picture the moment in the Garden of Eden that this piece of fruit is described on the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil. Eve looks at this tree and sees that in the words of a single verse of Genesis. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. Now, Genesis, of course, was not composed by a third-party observer, a hidden journalist or an anthropologist somewhere in the back of the garden writing things down as they happened. But it was really quite late as far as Old Testament texts go. And what's remarkable about this scriptural text is that it captures a way of describing three desires— that would have been intelligible not just to ancient Hebrew people, but across Near Eastern civilizations at the time. The first, taking them in the order that Genesis puts them, is the desire of the flesh. The fruit of the tree was good for food. In other words, the desire of the flesh is those human desires that relate to our physical embodiment— Food, drink, sex, etc. The second phrase in that tightly packed bit of scripture is delight to the eyes. This is the desire of the eyes, it was called, which is for ownership of the things of the world outside of ourselves. Anything that you or I might see and behold with our eyes and seek to have, control, or use. And finally, the third desire was for that which would make one wise. And this desire was called the pride of life, or sometimes worldly ambition. And the wisdom coming from the tree would augment that in a very important manner.
And when I first found the, stumbled across these three things, I thought that the ancients had a rather good sense of self-knowledge, really quite a profound one. But now for a hugely important point. I am not here to throw tonight a theological wet blanket on human desire. I do not want to squelch it or repress it. No, I want to claim that it is the core of our tradition and then build on it. And to do that, I need to point out one thing about this one verse of scripture from Genesis. These three desires, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes to own things, and the pride of life, are in Genesis's description of the first man and the first woman, desires in them, not in the fruit, before they ever sin and disobey God's command not to eat. That the desires exist is a good thing, and we can only hold that they were created as good. So the narrative account of the first sin is not that food and drink and sex and possessions and pride are bad. Hardly. It's that they somehow got out of balance. And since that time, both of course in the Bible and in human history in general, individuals and nations, and perhaps even you and I, struggle with the integration of these same three desires. We're always flopping back and forth, aren't we, between complete self-denial on the one hand and total self-indulgence on the other. We do whatever feels good rather than what is good, which is the desire of our flesh. We want more than our fair share, the desire of the eyes, and all of our lives run the risk once in a while about becoming all about us, which is pride of life. But there is a much more fascinating part of Christian anthropology, at least of desire. It does not stop with this naming of the three that we've just gone through in Genesis. So we're going to build it into a little chart here on this slide. And I've placed at the left the three we started talking about. And now we're going to press this structure forward a bit. And it should come as no surprise then that in the New Testament, before Jesus ever does anything interesting after he's born, before he ever calls disciples or performs miracles or preaches, he goes out into the desert to face, guess what, three desires. There's nothing new here. Christ went out to face his own human desires. And that it lasted 40 days meant that it was no small undertaking. And while he was out there, a tempter came and asked him to make stones into bread because he was hungry, he'd been fasting for 40 days. In other words, to feed the deep desire of his flesh. But he didn't do it. And it's not because bread or food was bad, but because it could not be triangulated. It could not be stronger than his desire for God. And then the tempter, of course, takes Jesus up onto a very high mountain and shows him every kingdom of the earth, every desire that the eye could wish to control or own, right? And tells him that he can own all of those things. And again, he doesn't accept the offer of the tempter, for he would have had to put his possessions, all the kingdoms of the earth, before God his Father. And then in one final flourish, the tempter takes him to Jerusalem, to the seat of prayer itself and tells him to throw himself off the parapet of the temple and let God's angels save him. To have so much pride in his own life that he will let God serve that pride. And again, he doesn't do it. And so for the first time in human history, we have someone whose actions are a claim on having reintegrated those three desires. Jesus does not suppress or eliminate any of them. He just puts them in a different relationship to God. But it gets better. When Jesus does preach, 
he gives his famous Sermon on the Mount and then carries on to describe how it is that people might live out that blessedness or that happiness. He gives instructions, surprise, on three practices and how it is that people might live out the happiness he's speaking about. He gives it, of course, to the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites because they do these things without integrity. But it's worth considering for us tonight if the desire of our flesh for bodily satisfaction is overpowering at times, what is a way to reverse that desire in a positive fashion? Well, quite simply, the answer in some way is to fast, to discipline one's own consumption such that another might eat. What would it mean to invert an overwhelming desire to own things, to control what is around us, or to have all the kingdoms of the earth at our disposal? The answer is to give away, to give alms, to take what one has and share it with those in need. And finally, the opposite of letting our worlds become all about us is, of course, prayer. For anyone who truly prays, thy will be done, and intends what those words mean, places the will of another in front of their own. It's a three-pronged approach of reintegrating human desire. And the point of these is not to make life into a really long Lent, such that by means of fasting and almsgiving and prayer, we end up hungry, poor, and grouchy. <laughs> no, that's a little bit like how we integrated our desires when we were six. I gave up candy for 40 agonizing days, only to spend my mornings and my evenings dreaming of an Easter basket filled with jelly beans and chocolates that would make me ill by breakfast as the first rays of the resurrection light flickered on Easter Sunday morning. <laughs> the point of these practices is that all three desires are tools for learning to desire, all three practices are tools, excuse me, for learning to desire well. And some of us, of course, need even more remedial training than others. And since a couple of my brothers in Holy Cross are here, as well as University of Portland's Dominican, Franciscan, and Benedictine sisters, I will have a little bit of fun at our expense. How does one commit oneself to the long-term course of integrating these three desires? Well, what if we called them vows? And a commitment, a commitment to fleshly control we might call that chastity, and not succumbing to the desire to own all the things we'd like, but to do our best to share what we have in common or with those in need might be called poverty. And of course, putting the will of others before that of ourselves would be that which is called obedience. That's right, the entire religious life, priests, brothers, and sisters, is built around this system of trying to work out these three desires. And at its best, the religious life is understood as a particular school wherein its members, by their vows, might learn to desire, that is, learn to love well. It's not the only way, of course, but you see how rooted in Christian anthropology that particular vocation is. Our adventure tonight, desire, memory, and searching for God, means we have to be serious about what and how we desire. And if we're too flippant with these terms, we minimize the day-to-day -day experiences of what it means to be human, that our physical needs have to be met, that we use the materials around us, and that some aspect of pride is at the heart of all that we do. Because I suppose that most often, you and I aren't able to say, that we really feel and act as though our deepest desire is to only love, know, and serve God, the old catechism. Perhaps you don't, but I can get distracted on the way to finishing that sentence 
by being hungry, tired, hot, cold, or alone. In short, our tradition gives us tools to consider how we might desire well as we are on the way to God. And what I've given tonight up here on this chart is a framework that sits at the heart of St. Augustine's Confessions. Thomas Aquinas picks it up later in his Summa Theologia. And a number of modern theologians from St. John Paul II to non-Catholic feminist theologians I know in Europe are working through desire using this very same schema. But more importantly than claiming those authorities, old and new, the question that I hope that you might consider when you go away from Buckley this evening is whether these descriptions work for you. St. Augustine, when he would preach on a psalm, would say to his congregation, let's see if we can find ourselves in it. Might I describe my own desires in terms of my flesh and my eyes and my pride? And on that note, I will apply this and tell another brief Cambridge anecdote before we move to memory. I've been very lucky to be part of a community in Cambridge called Gates. And there are around 150 graduate students in this community in residence in any given year masters and PhD students around the world who, from around the world who study everything imaginable. And every couple of months, they have scholars tell about their research in an informal and more personal way called scholar stories. And in my first two years, I noticed that there was a somewhat of a structure to how these stories went. First, scholar goes to farthest corner of the world imaginable. Second, Scholar delivers to farthest corner of the world imaginable one form of education, technology, or liberation. Has to be one of the three. Three, an NGO or systemic change begins, and the scholar returns changed forever. Now, this would sound appallingly hokey if it weren't time after time mind-numbingly amazing. Now, since God has a sense of humor, I'm a Catholic priest in this lot. I have never saved a community, or a language group, or a set of cells, or even a houseplant from anything. (laughs) And when pressured to give one of these talks, I decided to road test this research, to give a condensed articulation of exactly what I've given you tonight. I wanted to see if it would translate, if a secular audience might respond. And after walking through this theological anthropology, I mentioned that one might find concerns about these three desires in a less systematic way, say in Freud or Foucault. We might just label them instead of the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and pride, we might call them more crassly, money, sex, and power. And at the end of my talk, I certainly held my breath before this room of my peers to determine whether my spouting Augustine and scripture would result in my being shunned from the up-and-coming Cambridge intelligentsia. But to my relief and surprise, the Q&A went on forever, from the secular Jewish technology researcher, the non-practicing Muslim social scientist, the hard-bitten atheist chemist, and the evangelical Protestant biologist, and I'm using their labels for themselves and not mine. A conversation began that night that has meant that I've started reading histories of modern physics for my Lenten penance (laughs) and have gotten, and I'm actually sort of proud of this, thrown out of my friend's science laboratory. But on the other side of it, I look out as I preach on Sunday mornings and see the non-religious, the anti-religious, and those of other religions sitting quietly in the back of mass, taking in every word and action. I suggest to you only this. I'm growing more and more convinced that it's worth taking up the perennial conversation about desire, about what we love. And I'm saying that the resources coded into the fabric of the Jewish and after it Christian experience of living these desires provide real grist for the mill that can extend the conversation far beyond the theology classroom, but to the broader university and hopefully human community. 
But that brings us to the heart of the matter, memory. It's a term that we use to describe much more than what we had for breakfast or where we hope we left our car keys. Memory is a term for how you and I have any sense of a stable reality. Because if we're honest about the passing of time from the future into the past, the present is just an instant that's constantly slipping away. And to have a coherent account of who and where we are right now, we have to stitch together both our expectations of the future on the one hand, as well as our recollections of the past on the other. It's hugely important, memory is, in defining who we are. I spent a short period of time regularly saying mass for the patients in an Alzheimer's unit of a mental care facility. And as the content of those patients' memories slowly escaped their grasp, their families reported that it was kind of like experiencing their death twice. First, when they lost the ability to hold together the events of their past, and then, of course, secondly, when they ceased to breathe. That's by way of saying that we live day to day in such a way that memory is part of our most intimate self. We're not who we are without it. A second example I ought to bring up is because of today's date. How many of us observed a pause in our day or prayed for a moment for an end to terror, violence, and war? That's recollection of the horror of 9-11, not for its own sake, but for our present and our future. So, in the first half of the lecture, we built a framework for desire. If we are, and we are what we love, then we need to be able to describe those loves. Memory is going to add an identity to desire. And this is where we're going to shift to begin to speak about God, and not in an abstract way, but a very concrete one. You see, we have been remembering, in one sense already, all night. We were remembering the description of human desire in the Garden of Eden, and then the temptation of Christ in the desert, and then how to pray and fast and give alms. We were remembering not merely to create this beautiful chart we've had up for the last few minutes, but also to see if the claim that Christ was making about desire could give words to our reality. And that sort of remembering, which any of you who have ever attended a Catholic Mass will have witnessed, is not the recollection of simple facts to be laid out on a timeline. No, when we remember in this way, we participate in that very thing. And that's why attending a Jewish Seder meal is about more than consistently eating bitter herbs for three millennia. It's about participating in the same freedom which God gave to his people in the Exodus. Or in the case of the Catholic Mass, the Eucharistic narrative of the Last Supper is not a historical recreation of the upper room in Jerusalem. It does not look like the chapel of Christ the Teacher. It's a present participation in the very same event on account of the substantial presence of the very same God. So, I would like to use, in my estimation, what are two of the most important examples of this sort of remembering. And I'm drawing these from ancient homilies, specifically those of St. Augustine, who spent much of his life thinking about memory and desire. And in both cases, the memory in question is about Jesus. What we get from each of these examples, and each in a different way, is what the process of remembering does to us for our lives and our time. The first one is this. The scene is Calvary Hill, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he does something very, very odd. He does not do a lot of talking, but he has a few last words. And one of the most important is a quote. From up on the cross, Jesus prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, first of all, he's remembering. He's not delivering a newly crafted line of his own to be quoted by those who follow him for all of time. No, he's remembering the Psalms. 
quoting the first line of a prayer that he would have known from the time he was a little boy with his own Jewish upbringing. And there, at the hour of his death, was poetry on his lips. But what a weird thing to remember. If Christianity is right, and Jesus was fully human and fully God, then that line poses some really big problems. At that point on the cross, he didn't stop being God if he was all the way along, the word who created the universe and had taken up human flesh from Mary. So if Jesus is still God, how could he ask God, why have you abandoned me? It'd be sort of like the divine part of Jesus is talking to the human part in conversation, like they're chattering among themselves. Or as UP theologian Michael Cameron describes it really perfectly, it'd be sort of like divine ventriloquism, divinity using our humanity like a cheap puppet. And this is where Augustine is so incredibly helpful. For you see, when Christ cries out on Good Friday in abandonment and commends his spirit to God, he's never stopped being God, creator of the universe. But that day we remember that he's taken up more than just our skin. He's taken up our life, our death, and our voice. He cries out loud in a human voice, the sound of human agony at its worst. And at that lowest moment, suffering innocent doomed to die, it's not a voice from heaven that speaks out like it was when he was baptized, but the voice of God made human flesh. And Augustine figured out that in that moment, a most marvelous exchange happens because Christ who suffers unjustly speaks in our words, in our flesh, so that we might speak in his. Suffering doesn't disappear in the world. Goodness, no. We've all seen the news this summer. But no longer will the suffering of sinners great or small, student or professor, brother or sister, ever be undergone alone. We will cry out in him. When we suffer, it will be in him. And when we die and breathe our last, yes, that too will be in him. Because when we speak those words, we speak them in him. And in that moment, the cross became hope. But such closeness of our human with his divine could not have even been conceivable unless we remember. We remember Christ's death, not to hear a story, but to listen to him speak in our flesh, listen to him speak in us, Uncomfortable though that may be, his words of agony are difficult. We remember so that we might then practice speaking in him, that whenever we need to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It will be because our Savior speaks and hears our cry with us. And this is where the identity shift begins to take place. When we remember how Christ not only took up our flesh and our voices, but that he did so in order to teach us how to speak. What happens is we have to think with Augustine one step further. If Christ took up our flesh and our voice, he certainly didn't put it down again. And even after rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, he couldn't have stopped speaking. Now, for example, number two. Not quite a decade later, Augustine would work through another version of the same question of memory. In the first, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It helped him knit humans and Christ so closely together that when we speak in him, we are being transfigured, changed in some way by him. The second part, however, was when he heard the same Christ say this line, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, the me brings up a couple of really big questions with serious consequences. 
Now, the story is going to be familiar to many of you. A Pharisee named, named Saul is not happy with this new group of followers of Christ who are currently referring to themselves as the way. He binds them in chains only to haul them before the religious magistrates, and somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus to the north, he is blinded by light, and hears this most amazing question. A voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asks the voice to identify itself, and Jesus says that it's him. Now, Augustine quickly realized that if we think very hard about this at all, we've got a huge problem on our hands. And Augustine asks why it is that Christ, who had ascended already to heaven and was gone, said what he did. It's not like Saul was hurting him. Why did Christ not say, which would have been more accurate and made more sense, why are you persecuting my saints or my servants or my people or my holy ones, but rather, why are you persecuting me? What a funny formulation. And Augustine's conclusion is that when the voice of Christ spoke to Paul, or to Saul, excuse me, it must have been the equivalent of, why attack my very body, my limbs? And Augustine makes this point very vividly. He says that Saul's conversion is like the tongue of a body crying out in the name of the foot. And when one's foot is trampled in a crowd, the tongue cries out, you are treading on me, not you're treading on my foot. And he says in great rhetorical flourish, the tongue was not crushed and the foot does not speak. Nonetheless, the unity of the tongue and the foot within the same body allows the tongue to say me for both. And what Augustine did with this was remarkable and unique in the Christian tradition. First, Christ took up the human cry on the cross and transfigured it, made it his own. But secondly, that did not end with the resurrection and the ascension. That cry stayed his own, such that he expressed it every time that one of his members was hurt or persecuted, prayed, or was silent. There was still a taking up of, the, of a cry of humanity. And Christ the head and the rest of the body form one whole Christ. And inasmuch as you or I or any other member of Christ speaks or prays or acts or desires in him, we can be assured that we're being drawn along and transfigured by the head of the same body. We're becoming evermore who we are. Don't miss this. Augustine says, we are becoming Christ. That was not scandalous to people in North Africa 1,600 years ago, but terribly exciting. We remember Christ in order to become him. It gives a whole new meaning to why and how we bother remembering at all. And of course, we remember Christ sacramentally by eating his body and drinking his blood. Augustine's way of preaching that was, be who you are, become what you receive. We remember Christ in the poor. And Augustine made his congregation really worried when he suggested that how they store up riches in heaven was to invest their wealth in the only place that was safe, Christ. In other words, give it to the poor. Tough sermon. We don't become Christ alone, but together in this system. And most importantly, we remember Christ, of course, in mercy. When a notorious sinner came back to church one day and was present in the congregation after having long left the faith and become an astrologer, Augustine preaches to his congregants, we must therefore, speaking about this sinner in their midst, commend him to your eyes and your hearts. With your hearts, love the person you see. With your eyes, take care of him. Look at him. Make sure you'll know him again 
And wherever he goes, point him out to our brothers and sisters who are not here today. This watchfulness is a mercy. Make yourselves his guardians. This is a very active way of remembering because we don't do it alone. We do it as Christ, as his very body. It's a way of recalling that moves us beyond ourselves moment after moment, such that what we might say with Augustine is, I could not have seen it myself if I had not seen it through the eyes of Christ, if indeed I had not been in him. These eyes, of course, you can't take them and adapt them at will like putting on glasses when we want to. Rather, by being a member of a body, we learn to see, to speak, see, smell, and taste in ways that are characteristic of that body. One sees neighbors in need. One learns to speak the word that leads beyond words. And one is transfigured, prayer by prayer, into Christ. Some of my very dear non-religious friends will occasionally wonder why I continue to remember things all the time. I remember Christ at Mass every day. I encourage people to remember their sins in a new way in Christ, in confession. It's all an ongoing remembering. But it's never been about the past. For Christians, it is all about becoming who we really are in such a way that Christ is evermore drawing us more closely to himself and in the process to each other. This is not the rosy work of a cure-all, but the gritty, ongoing two steps forward and one step back on a good day way of living the Christian life. And it, at long last, and you've labored very hard with me tonight, it gets us to searching for God in our desire and our memory. For all too often, the search for God is undertaken by us alone, sitting in a dark room and thinking really, really, really hard about omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving, and all-merciful being. We do not have a direct memory of any of those properties, of a God of properties. And it's very hard to have much of a tangible desire for such a God. Christ relieves us of that in a very serious way. Our focus is not on the mist, but on the real material of our lives. He had desires that we might desire in him. He spoke in our words that we might speak in his. He became human in order that we humans might become divine. And by remembering, we undergo a process of letting our God transfigure us day after day after day. And in being drawn closer to God, we find ourselves ever more aware of each other. That's right, aware of our desires and remembering Christ as we get ever closer to heaven, we realize that we're stuck with each other. And in a wonderful moment of clarity about desire and memory, St. Augustine writes about what it means to discover one's desires in Christ. It didn't mean that he, the saint who famously prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet, had forgotten his sins. No, it was exactly the opposite. His own unintegrated desires made him want to run out and be alone by his very remembering Christ with others. That's what holds him back. Look at these few lines of his moment on the edge. Filled with terror, Augustine says, by my sins and my load of misery, and he had a penchant for drama, I had been turning over in my mind a plan to flee into solitude, but you forbade me and strengthened me by your words. To this end, Christ died for all, you reminded me, that they who are alive may not live for themselves, but for him who died for them. See then, Lord, I cast my care upon you, that I may live and I will contemplate the wonders you have revealed. You know how foolish and weak I am. Teach me and heal me. Your only Son, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, has redeemed me by his blood. 
Let not the proud disparage me, for I'm mindful of my ransom. I eat it, I drink it, I dispense it to others. And as a poor man, I long to be filled with it among those who are fed and feasted. And then do those who seek him praise the Lord. What was the temptation for him to run out and be alone lands him right back in communion, stuck with everybody else. He's being taught and healed by eating and drinking and dispensing to others as a poor man the price of his redemption. To face his desire and find his God, he ended up recommitting himself to all of those right around him. The search was not a solitary journey, but the collected action of praise. I'd like to close tonight with a 20th century Augustinian theologian's description of heaven or the end of the search. Because I don't think that we ponder heaven or finding what we've been searching for often enough. And let me preface it with what heaven is not. It is not a place where each of us gets a fluffy cloud all to ourselves. That's the Simpsons. It's not heaven. No, listen to this. The redeemed are not simply adjacent or next to each other in heaven. Rather, in their being together as the one Christ, they are heaven. Heaven will not be that place to which we go. It will be that which, we, which in Christ we become. So at long last, by our remembering, we will have become what we love and not on our own. So I suppose there will be a time in all of our lives when someone, in some fashion, is going to ask each of us a pointed question. Are you for real? And as Father John Donne reminds us, man does not live and cannot answer that question by self alone. And we might add that neither will we be redeemed or find the God whom we seek by self alone. No, if we are fully human and fully desiring, we will remember as the day-in, day-out task of becoming fully divine. Then, when one of us is asked the pointed question, are you for real? We will be able to answer it fully and finally in Christ as we say, yes, we are. Thank you for your attention. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I think we've gotten just a few minutes for questions, but Karen and Father Charlie ask that you please come forward to the microphones here at the front if you'd like to ask. Please don't be shy. And please do introduce yourselves. Father, follow the way that you integrate these elements of our faith and these elements of our humanity into the deeper elements of our own theology. And my question is, I'm not an August, Augustine scholar, but I know that he is one of the great, perhaps the first theologians of original sin. And I'm curious, my sense experientially of what someone would try to characterize that to be would be some kind of an undertow in the process whereby we seek 
through our memory and our desire, that unity with God. In your perception of this, and in your integrating these elements, what is original sin for us in the way we misalign our memory or our desire or our search for God? Thank you. It's a really great question. And the, the simple answer is that, well, those three desires that I had up at the very beginning, original sin is simply the triangulation of them that means that the thing we desire is actually grows in importance so much that we place it ahead of God, right? And so that we desire both God as the end of that which we love and these other things, right? The things we own, the things we do for our, for our flesh and our own pride and success. And when those become ends in themselves, that becomes a definition of sin. Because if the definition of God, of, of Christ, as we've put it out here, is everybody, right, is completeness, then sin, an original sin, is our ability to turn in on ourselves, right? And so we gave the definition of heaven. I mean, since we're, we're talking about sin, I should probably give a definition of hell. In this, in this system, uh, hell would be for eternity, being completely and utterly alone. And so when we've got something like original sin, it's something that's focusing us very much on our own selves. And uh, Augustine sees that very powerfully. He admits it very powerfully in himself, uh, most often is how this first arises. But especially in his preaching, one realizes that he had a really profoundly optimistic view about where that was going. Um, and that's something people don't write about when they read Augustine quite often enough. Thank you for your question. That wasn't part of the, that wasn't part of the show. Um, <laughs> Father, uh, first of all, thank you so much for what you've said, and thank you for some of the work that you've done. I've been privileged to read some of your reflections. Um, I have the privilege of serving as a hospice chaplain <laughs> and in a hospital as well. And uh, one of the things that uh, we talk a lot about with our patients and uh, with their families and that I do with funerals, we talk a lot about what Jesus says in John's Gospel is that unless a seed of grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it will yield a rich harvest. And Father Alexander Schmemann, as you know, talked a lot about this whole idea of death and resurrection and how it's so misunderstood. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those two things, the, the idea of, of dying to oneself and what resurrection means in that context. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great and really profound question that I can only begin an answer to. And in the first part, the, the grain of wheat from, from John's Gospel uh, is a very important verse in my own life because as uh, an autobiographical note, I grew up on a farm in the middle of Montana. And so that verse was on my ordination card when I became a priest. Um, but there's something very profound about that image of the simple grain of wheat, which is also its own biological miracle, right? The miracle of life and how things grow and what we can study and know on our earth. It's really where faith and reason intersect in this thing we can observe before us becomes a metaphor for becoming fully ourselves, right? Becoming, being those who are resurrected with our bodies, being together at the end of, end of time. Um, we suffer through time and change in this life, though. And when God is all in all, right, when all things are complete, it would only make sense that the material aspects of ourselves and our history and our memory would be, would be part and parcel of that resurrected whole. So in that sense, it's a profoundly exciting thing. And it's something that's part of an ongoing journey. And in cultures, uh, and not just America, but also I've found being at, at funerals in England, not only are they hard, but we're very scared of death. But in the Catholic funeral mass, there's something that characterizes this very clearly and very carefully, is that it says in the Eucharistic prayer, when we pray it at a funeral mass, that life is changed and not ended. And again, what a very curious thing to say. But if we understand it in terms of just the life cycle of seeds that might fall to the ground and die only in order to rise again, then it's not such a perplexing thing at all. 
because at that point that a wheat plant dies and is harvested, ideally by a John Deere combine in my situation, it's something that has not ended, right? It's either going to become bread or it's going to become uh, a new plant. And so though these moments, these liminal moments in our lives, and as a hospice chaplain, you experience this in the most profound ways, and thank you for your very intense work, um, it's a great privilege to be in those moments. And I've often found that being with those at the end of their lives is one of the greatest privileges of being a priest, because we get to witness this transition, not to the end, but to what's really the journey that's only beginning. So it remains a mystery, but one I think is helpfully thought of in terms of the agricultural image of the plant whose seeds die and rise again. Good evening, and thank you for your discussion. I appreciated uh, the discussion about how our desires given by God and their original intention. Um, my name is Anna Murphy, and I'm a junior at this university. In the, in the word, it describes how we are, as brothers and sisters, to become one in Christ and as a body, in, in his unity. In your discussion, you described how we are to become Christ. In verses, I don't know if this might be an arbitrary discussion, but become Christ or become like Christ. And that's differences um, to those who do not share our beliefs and then to those who do. If that is an arbitrary difference or one that is important. Thank you. Thank you. It's a really good question. Uh, and, and the question is, well, are we becoming Christ or becoming like Christ in one body? Because that runs the risk, at least of excluding those, right, who may not believe in Christ or want to be part of Christ. And this was, uh, is one of the questions I posed very early on uh, to, to Augustine, and I'll default for a moment to his wisdom on this when I was reading about this. And he was in a place that was very fractured, um, and was a place where people believed in different versions of Christ, let alone those who also believed not in Christ and in other things. And his comment was, look, the Christ we believe in has to be big enough to encompass all of these possibilities. We are the ones who make God too small. And oftentimes it's our dividing up Christ and making that body small enough that we can't conceptually imagine it being big enough to contain those outside of ourselves. Um, it's like our determining how big God's mercy might be, right? And so this is why he used the word whole Christ, because we often have, and he's very graphic about it, he says we often, as Christians, have, a, have the tendency to self-amputate right, to become our own communities and say, look, these are the rules. This is what it means to be completely Catholic or completely in Christ. And this was a big controversy in the fifth century in North Africa. I mean, so they fought through these things. But ultimately, he didn't want to make that second, um, that second distinction to say become Christ-like, which is an important thing that we talk about in practice and is also in our tradition and our scripture. He wanted to go for the full, to say, become Christ, to be completed being. Now, when we talk about behaving, there's a help, the distinction is helpful for this reason. When we are acting in this world and have not died and have not been risen, or we have not been raised uh, in a resurrected state, there are a lot of moments when the best we can do is Christ-like, right? Because we know that this process is not complete yet. And so the term is still very helpful, um, and I thank you for bringing it up. But I think that the goal, if we're going to keep God as big as possible and not let our God get too small, has to be, along with Augustine, become Christ. Hi, Father Kevin. I'm Catherine Jacobs, and um, I'm a freshman here. And I have one quick question, and it's not so much a concept as it is, I guess, a strategy. Um, how do you have a conversation and a constructive uh, uh, conversation with intellectuals or great minds who are not necessarily religious and have one with grace and are able to get 
your ideas through to them, I guess. And I know you can't really have an art, you can't really convince someone who isn't willing to listen, but how, how are you able to um, have deep conversations and really get through to them? It's a great question, thank you. And um, this is something I, I alluded to just a bit in my, in my talk, because my environment in Cambridge is a very secular one. Um, and I very much appreciate the perspective of my non-religious friends who often very much wanted to have a conversation. Their fear, though, in having a conversation with a religious person and walking around looking like I do, you know, they describe me as a religious person, so I think that's fair, is that I'm going to have it immediately and too neatly figured out for them, right? I will be able to say in the course of a three-minute conversation or over dinner, well, this is the solution to all of your problems. If you just did A, B, C, and D, your whole intellectual world would snap together in a perfect fit. Um, and this is often the assumption, and so this is actually where, where I think there's a lot of work to be done on the part of those who are religious, because that's the part I can speak to, is not describing being religious as equals having it all worked out, right? Because if you read the newspaper, that's often how it works, right? Those people who represent religion A, B, C, or D believe these things, one, two, three, and four, and they've got it all packed up in this nice, tidy synthesis, and look at them for being hypocrites when they don't do it, right? And we can relate to that. But if we talk about being religious, and it's always been sort of a, a frustrating uh, label for me because I think we're more than that. If we talk about being people on the journey, on the way, those with desires that we're working on day in and day out, and this thing called religious, and this being religious, and this being called God, are actually something that make a huge difference in the way that we can integrate and work through those desires, then I've found that the conversation takes off in a new way. But it requires a lot of patience, uh, mutually on both sides, but I think is a terribly rewarding one. Because I think at its best, the Catholic tradition is one that has always, at its best, it's had its worst moments, obviously, and we know those. But at its best, it's one that's lifted and taken that which it's found in elements of the world that are foreign to itself and brought those up to a greater level. And I think the same can be true when those who are religious, like myself, encounter a culture that in some places is profoundly secular. I don't know that the productive answer is to throw stones at it, but to view it as the same hopeful possibility that might be lifted and changed and shaped by the goodness that comes from descriptors like this tradition. But it's a great question. Thank you, Catherine. Well, learning how to um, desire well and remember in hope and um, seek with fellow pilgrims is not a bad way to spend a Thursday after, uh, evening. And so I would invite you to join me in thanking Father Kevin Grove for his remarks. <laughs>